If you have your Bible with you, turn to Romans 6. We're going to flop around in a couple key passages, but I think this one's going to be helpful for us. It's definitely going to carry um, a key belief and a key value we have as a church. As a church. And while you're turning there, I'll probably mention this at the tail end of the service whenever we do the announcements. Uh, but just to say, we, do, we, we are in need as a church. We are in need for just a couple, two or three good key people to come back and help us with our kids' community. I mean, not, not this morning, but just overall the structure of it. Um, I know this feels like something that we announce from time to time, five or six times a year. Um, what's interesting to me is whenever I meet with pastors who have churches that are 10 times our size, they do the same thing. There's a lot of pastors with churches much bigger. They're doing the same exact thing. Um, and that's just because when a family comes, they carry usually more kids on average than they, ha- than they are as adults. And so it's, it's exponentially more. It's not like a worship team where if this church were to go from our size now to 500, we all of a sudden have 19 worship teams. It doesn't really work like that. We'll probably still just have two or three. But with the kids, the demand starts to swell with it. Um, so the, the current way we do it now, if you didn't know, if you're not involved with that, is two weeks on, four weeks off. Um, and, I, and listen, I get why it's not the most exhilarating thing to sign up for, and that's because there's no, and hear me now, no reciprocation. Those kids will not give you a sense that you have done anything significant in that time that you have spent back there, Right? You will talk to them, you will pour your guts into getting a lesson ready, and they're going to tell fart jokes, right? Or you will be working with a a little toddler, and as soon as you feel like you've had a a deep moment, an eye-to-eye moment where you feel like maybe Christ has done something in this toddler's life, they're going to flip around and bite the one right next to them, right? This is the reality of it. But but let me just tell you, let me, let me, (laughs) let me encourage you, that work back there, that is real work. I mean, that is, that is infantry-level real work, just this brick-by-brick brick building of the next generation. I mean, I remember, this is, this is how it worked for me. Whenever I became a Christian on the college campus, my first senior year, um, I had multiple senior years. My first senior year when I became a Christian, do you want to know what flashed through my mind whenever I heard the gospel? Everything that my my middle school, high school, Sunday school leaders taught me. And back then, I, could, I didn't care anything. I wanted the donuts, the chocolate milk, and by God's grace, there'd be a cute girl in there. All I cared about at the age of 14, 15, 16, 17, that's all I cared about. But to this day, I still keep in contact, and I go and spend good time with, I mean, now they're older, and they're in a different season of life, but they, they were the ones that taught me whenever I was just a teenager, right? They were the, the Wismans and the McLaughlins working with those kids just a few at a time. Those were the passages, those moments of love shared, the moments of investment into me, that those started rattling around, just like the Bible says will happen. And then I started remembering God was using what they had sowed year after year after year after, when I would give them nothing. I wouldn't give them a high five, a thank you card, a nothing. And they kept doing it. And, and it built a pastor. It built a pastor right? So I'm just going to say, I want you to consider it. Consider signing up for something like that. It's a very real investment. It's a needy investment. We need help. We need help. Um, Okay, enough of that. I'm going to move into Romans 6. This is going to be a helpful Sunday for you if you just feel like you're losing. And I'll leave it at that. It won't even qualify. You just feel like you're losing, okay? 
Romans 6, verse 1. This is Paul talking to a young church. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because just, you know, the argument was, hey, if God gives us grace, even though we're very dirty people, why can't we just keep being dirty? Okay? By no means, Paul says, how can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Okay. What is important to us as a value and a belief at Legacy is how the gospel of God for mankind and Jesus, the gospel, how it's not just what creates new life in you, that's what empowers you to live moment by moment, day by day. In other words, the gospel, which is the story of God, the good news for mankind through the person of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, that good news, it's not less than the power of salvation, but it is more. It is much more than that as well. It's also God's message to animate you day by day. Yes, to rescue you, also to animate you. Right. We know this from the scripture. Paul says in the Romans that the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. And then he later on says to another young church, and just as you receive Christ Jesus, just as you got it, just as the gospel switched on that, that switch in your life, so walk in him, so continue in him, so keep living in him. This is what we call gospel centrality, right? The good news of God, not just that it awakens my heart, but that continues me, right? That's gospel centrality. That the good news is not just center of my salvation, but it's center of my marriage. It's actually the center of how I make my plans, how I spend money, how I spend time. He is the center of it all. So from day one, we've endeavored to build a church that is full of gospel-fascinated, gospel-centered people, really not wanting to build a church under any other way, right? So that was our goal, to build a people that are enamored, fixed, locked gaze with the gospel, not just how it wins you and rescues you into a really cool family called the church who happens to be on mission, whether it's in the workplace or in the home or in the cul-de-sac or even to the furthest reaches, but also a gospel, also a gospel that helps you beat porn, that helps you beat anxiety, that helps you beat jealousy, that helps you um, away from making a God out of things like money or time or sex or even your own kids. So the gospel in a gospel-centered venue, the gospel is not just the door to a really cool house, but it's the entire house. It doesn't, doesn't just awaken you. It actually continues to move you, to steer you, to drive you. If you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard this in many different ways, and you probably think that it sounds theologically correct, even theologically natural, but it doesn't. It's not natural to do it, right? To apply this gospel to our everyday, it doesn't feel very natural. I mean, if it was natural, Paul wouldn't have to speak to it so much. <laughs> His writing would be a lot less than it is. Applying the gospel, a lot of times, can just feel like trying to learn a new language, if you've ever had to learn a second language in school, I remember being in high school in Fort Worth, Texas, and I took Spanish 1 and Spanish 2 with the same teacher, had this dumb rule, you were not allowed to speak English once you entered the classroom. 
right? So you had, <laughs> you had to learn how to use some phrases pretty quick. I mean, food and car is just going to get you so far. I mean, if you, if you had a, like a substantial question, you better learn that joker in Spanish because you wouldn't hear it if you didn't have it, right? It took a little while. It wasn't, it wasn't just natural to me. I had to put some focus into it. It doesn't happen overnight. So if this is new to you or semi-foreign or even vague, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. If when I describe what being gospel-centered means, and, and you're, you're, it's like you're trying to hug a tree, but you're, you're, your hands can't touch on the other side, you kind of understand it, but you don't totally understand it, that's totally normal. We grow up, we are groomed as Christians to believe, I was too, we are all groomed to believe that the gospel only saves you, and then you got it from there. Just roll up your sleeves and get to work. You got it from there. The gospel's done with its heavy lifting. Now you have to start yours. That's why when I asked the average Christian, how does the gospel lead you away from addiction? How does the gospel remind you that you are free from, I don't know, gluttony or being stingy with your money or being stingy? How does the gospel do that? I get blank stares a lot from people. They don't, it's, it's almost like they're trying to use a screwdriver to hit nails into a board. Like I'm asking them a question where it, it doesn't make sense to them. My continual prayer is that legacy grows in this gospel fluency and this gospel centrality. So if you're wondering where our aspirations lie, it's there because everything else is running downhill. Be, hear me when I say that. If you understand how the gospel is the center of absolutely every part of your life, then community, it just becomes a lot easier. Mission to your neighbors, I mean, like I said, it's running downhill. Diversity, easier to understand. Uh, giving, being generous with your time, talent, treasure, easy to understand. Right? You know, today's passage, I think, is going to be a passage that helps us see how the gospel frees us to celebrate wins. Just to celebrate small wins. Does that sound inconsequential? It almost sounds like it's a footnote, right? The importance of celebrating a win whenever we see it in front of us. But we live in a, just a lifetime full of jagged struggles. And when you do, and you do, it will be the gospel that helps you seize the moment, live in the present, see what God is doing around you with gratitude and celebrating, even if the world doesn't see any reason to celebrate. The world looks at your life and they don't understand. You see, in sports, we know what a win looks like. Right? It doesn't even matter the sport. There's a definition of what creates the win, whether it's a touchdown or there's um, home plate. We know what it looks like in golf. We know what it looks like in basketball. There's a finish line in other sports. We, we just know in sports what a win looks like. We know. We know when the goal's been achieved. We know when to celebrate. With life, we don't really know, do we? Not so easy. In fact, we don't even know if we're going in the right direction <laughs> in life. We have no idea. We don't know when to spike the ball. We don't know when to high five. We don't know how to just take a second and enjoy the moment because it just feels like more losing. I mean, just consider your last two hours or four or 24 hours. At what point can you stand back and say that moment, however brief it is, that was a win? That was a win. Some of you, it's going to be ready. Some of you will be, oh, that's easy, Luke. I, I know at this time and this time. That's rare, right? Most of the time we have to go, okay, okay, give me a second, give me a second. Four hours. What have I done the last four hours? 
Have I been awake that long? What's going on? Four hours, four hours. God, I know you're here. You did something, right? Right? We have to think. It's difficult. It's a tough question because we feel like we're losing so much. <laughs> we just feel like we're losing. We have a disability in spotting wins, and what it will do over time is breed a boredom, a bitterness, right, a grumpiness. We get up early. We go through the motions. Go to work or school. We go through more motions. We come home boringly and predictable. We go through the motions. We rinse. We repeat. We do it again. I recall one leader I was reading about once. He referred to this as black and white living. Black and white, no color, right? No color. Nothing colorful about going through the motions, which is why he committed an affair, right? It was his attempt to make his black and white look colorful again, to inject and rejuvenate some life into this boring, bitter existence that he was living. And by the way, that's where all midlife crises come from, okay? Just this, this hope to rejuvenate a very boring life, a black and white life, right? That's where affairs come from. That's where big changes, big expenditures, new job, new house, new city, new wife, new everything, right? And listen, Christians do it too. Christians could be the worst. And whenever we see this, doesn't it look a little pathetic when we see it in the, in the person that's struggling through this crisis, they don't see it? When you see the guy that's middle-aged maybe and he left his wife and is dating someone half his age, bought a sports car that is way out of his lane, listening to a Spotify playlist that his daughter listens to, acting like he is so much younger. Don't we look at that and we say, that's kind of pathetic, man. But, I mean, we understand it too, don't we? Because it's in all of us. To live a black and white existence, a drudgery, a commonplace life, and say, I wish it just had a little bit more color in it. Something. And even people that are far from Jesus people that don't even believe in Jesus, they are resolved that this black and white living that we experience today, it's actually made worse by what they call living in a comparison culture, which is exacerbated by social media, right? What social media does a lot of times is it will take your worst fear and it amplifies it, dials it up to 10. The fears that you are not enough, you are losing. You are not enough and you're losing. This is why some of you young moms in here, it's why you wilt whenever you look online and you see how other moms are parenting their kids. Because they're just better than you, right? They thought of everything that you couldn't think of. The crafts that they did for Junior's birthday is so much cooler than your crafts, right? It, it, folks, listen, that's why everyone is so much more beautiful than you online. They're more fit. Even their food is better than your food, right? Because pictures don't lie. It's all been captured. Everyone is living their best life. Listen, I'll be vulnerable as if you can't tell. This is why I struggle with social media. It's not because I'm super spiritual. <laughs> I'm just tempted to wilt too. I hate how it makes me feel. Pushing that, that Facebook or Instagram icon on my phone is like dental surgery for me. I don't like it. I feel indicted. I feel compared. I feel less than. I feel like I'm losing in the sea of all these filter-drenched posts that say your existence is black and white because you'll never be like this. It makes you feel like a victim. Comparison will do that. Comparison will make you feel like a victim. And victims, they don't see anything to be thankful for. They don't see small wins, right? Here's a passage in 1 Samuel. We'll put it up on the screen if you don't feel like turning to it. It's a cool passage, though. 1 Samuel, and this will be in chapter 18. I'm already there, so you don't have to turn there. But listen, this is a, this is a time 
in the narrative where Goliath is still warm. He just died, right? David had just taken him out. And it says this, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. This was their little pop song. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh-oh, that's awkward. And Saul was very angry, and this thing displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. <laughs> this is just crazy. So this little worship team comes out, and they sing this song, and they've got all the music, and they're all dialed in, and you just know he had a big smile on his face, Saul did, until they got to the second stanza, right? And then their math was all wrong. It was awkward. It was a song that was kind of elevating David, but they weren't singing it to David. They were singing it to Saul. That's the problem. So what did he do? He got ticked. He was compared. Got angry, whined about it a little bit to pretty much anyone who was around him, became a victim, and then despised David. His color world went to black and white really fast. Nothing was worth celebrating anymore. This is a formula we're used to now. Think about the formula. One, we fail to see the wins before us. Don't see them. Two, we see others get what we don't. Then we complain and create a victim mentality, and then we hate those who get what we don't have. Saul could not bring himself to sing this pop song with the ladies. He didn't like it. This is the power of flesh. This is the power of the flesh in your life. The flesh is just that broken piece of your soul that loves the world. It wants to boast of what it has. It wants to boast of the things it does. It wants to boast in who it is. It lusts after everything that it sees around it. The flesh says no matter how much you have, there will always be more. No matter how much you have, there will always be more. One of the books I've read this year was about polar explorers. <clears throat> and uh, one of them, Robert Perry, who's been credited as being the first to reach the first, or the first to reach the North Pole. He was a U.S. Navy guy. He wrote this in his journal before making that last dash. He says, I don't want to live and die without accomplishing anything or without being known beyond a narrow circle of friends. I would like to acquire a name which shall be an open sesame to circles of culture and refinement anywhere, a name which would make my mother proud. Remember, mother, he says. He's right to his mom. Listen, I'm sorry. I love my mom. This guy needs some friends, though. You don't do it like a diary entry to your mom. He's lighting to his mom. That's kind of sad. Remember, mom, I must have fame. And I cannot reconcile myself to years of commonplace drudgery. Commonplace drudgery. Perry is describing a very boring black and white living hell for himself. And here's the thing. Whenever he wrote this, he'd set more records than anybody. He'd already gone further north than anyone had ever gone. He'd discovered more than anyone had ever discovered. His best friend was Theodore Roosevelt, the, the acting president of the time. He was the biggest celebrity in New York, invited to all the parties, and still it was not enough. He saw all of that as commonplace drudgery. I'll bet Saul probably knew he was being a little bit petty in our passage. 
with this song. I bet even some of the people around him, I would imagine if they felt comfortable in saying things, probably would have spoken to that a little bit, right? Saul, come on, man. Who cares about David? David who? He's like a scrawny little teenager. He couldn't even wear your armor. He got lucky with a rock. You have the kingdom. The kingdom is yours. You're the king. We should party. We got to win. The Philistines are done. Look what God has done. Bring out the food. Bring out all the shiny stuff and the, the singers. Bring out the lions and the tigers or whatever else they brought out. I don't know what they did when they partied. <laughs> Sounds like a zoo. I just made it sound like a zoo. Bring out the zoo. But Saul couldn't do it. You see, this is what goes on in all of us. And when we see that we're being petty like this, like Perry, or when we see that we're being petty like Saul in this case, we will take a next step. And that step is typically to begin comparing ourselves with people below us. Don't we do this? Could be worse. Guess I need to stop whining. Could be worse. Could be living in Sudan. Could be living under a bridge. Could be worse. It could have cancer. Could be that guy. Could be that girl. Could be far worse. And listen, there might be some truth in that. You do have it better than most people, especially if you're in this room, right? Have it better than most. But how can that be an answer if it's just a comparison in a different direction? It's just comparison in a different direction. If comparison is the problem, comparison cannot be the answer. Besides, if we're only content when people are below us, what is that really saying? Right? It's not Jesus bringing us gratitude and celebration. It's the demise of others. <laughs> Think about that for Let that sit. We're finding peace in the destruction and the demise of others. That's what's convincing us that we're okay. Also, what if you are one of those people in misery? Do you just keep looking for people that are beneath you? What if it, what if it can't get any worse? What if you are the one that has cancer or lost half your family to something? What if you are that person? I mean, I get it, but comparison is not going to do the heavy lifting that the gospel does. It's not. So Paul does something really cool as he's speaking to the church of Philippi, and he helps us see what it looks like to be content, content in a life that might even feel like commonplace drudgery from time to time and definitely looks like it by everyone's account around you, right? So this will be in Philippians 4.10. It's another big passage for us today, Philippians 4.10. I'm going to read it to you. It'll be up on the screen. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul learns the secret of content living no matter what the situation is. If he was low, abounding, it didn't move the needle for him one way or the other, right? It just didn't. He had a narrative that defined him. It just wasn't the victim one. It was the gospel narrative. He was living a gospel-centered life. He's describing a place I'd very much like to be all the time. Because hear this, when you are a victim, you don't see any good wins in front of you, ever. You can't. can't see it. You can never be at peace. Victims can never be thankful. You can never celebrate. Even if you overcome thousands, you haven't overcome ten thousands, right? 
So when I read a passage like this, my big question for Paul is, Paul, how did you get here? How did you get to this place? What is this secret? How did you get it? How do I get it? But he tells us, I can do all things through Christ. That's how he's kind of letting us into this secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul has a gospel-centered view of contentment. But I mean, if we could just drill it down even more, what does that even mean? That might be too vague for some of us, right? It's awfully non-tangible. How exactly can we be content in all things through the gospel of Jesus? Now, the passage we let off with in Romans 6 talked about how we're united with Christ. We're united in death, and we're united in resurrection. Last week, we hit a passage to a different church that was very similar, where Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is cool. Let me explain what's happening right now, what Paul is doing right now. He was, in fact, in Jesus, united with Jesus, connected, sharing with Jesus in death, and then he was also in Jesus, united with Jesus, connected and sharing with Jesus in resurrection. Both. Both. Resurrection as well. And resurrection in the most basic terms, if we were to just zoom out and look at it, it's just where death is replaced by vibrancy. Life. What was dead is now animated. This is actually what we celebrate in baptism, by the way. Romans 6 is a very helpful passage for you, by the way, if you're trying to help someone else understand baptism. And it's usually one of the ones that we drop in there and kind of teach seconds before we dunk some poor person in a horse trough, right? When they come up with their arms and they're spitting water everywhere and everyone's clapping. Romans 6 is the heartbeat behind that very moment. We celebrate this descent into the water as a uniting, shared death, joining Jesus in his death, and then the rising to new life as a joining Jesus in newness of life. And there's nothing magical about that moment. It's not magical, but it is commemorative. The Holy Spirit's not coming down like a dove and doing something real. I know people teach that. It's not true. That, that what the Holy Spirit had already done as far as heavy lift, it had already been done. The soul is already alive. But it is commemorative for everyone to see, for the new brothers and sisters, the church, right? For those who are far from Christ and for the powers and principalities and all of the cosmos to see and marvel at. It is important. But what does this shared resurrection life, what does that mean for you in your discontent, commonplace drudgery? Tuesday. What does it mean for Tuesday? I want you to consider that every win you encounter, even small wins, even small internal wins that nobody else sees but you, all the wins you encounter reflect the victory of God. And they point to a moment much bigger than the moment you're in. In other words, when you see small wins, they're really just breadcrumbs, like mile markers on a highway, pointing to something much grander much more unfathomable. When a healing happens, it could be miraculous or non-miraculous. It could be cancer vaporizing. It could be a migraine going away. When a healing happens, that does point to another day where all of biology and all of chemistry has sin extracted from it and there's no such thing as decay and chaos any longer. When a financial blessing occurs, shows us future day where all of wealth is reformatted 
The ones and the zeros we use digitally today are the gold bars of back in the day. It's reformatted. It's where the only thing that you will ever see that is of any value is just more presence of God, and you get that forever. Wealth is recalibrated. When reconciliation happens, when enemies become friends today, that small win, it points to another day where the word enemy itself will slip out of use. It won't be in the dictionary anymore. There will be no use for the word enemy. When a prayer is answered, that is a small win. It points to a day where instead of speaking into the air, hoping that God hears, hoping that he hears you with favor, you will be able to speak face to face with the king of glory as he smiles upon you for eternity. Points to that day. When a laugh is heard, whether you or your kids or someone around you, it reflects the day where there will be laughter, but not like today. It'll be a laughter with no sadness mingled into it. Even your deepest laughter now, it can't escape the sadness. Or a good night's sleep, that's definitely a win. It points to a day, reminds us that we will be in a place with no fatigue, no burnout, no hormonal issues or nightmares or anything weird. It will be perfect rest. Or when a great memory comes to you, a reminiscent, or a great idea, it points to a day where you will be filled with that because the boundaries on our mortal frame will be pulled off. Or when you see a great piece of art or hear a great song, it will point to a day where your emotions will behold beauty with absolutely zero boundaries to it. Hear me now. Anytime you experience a content moment, good meal, good friend, good miracle, it is merely a mile marker pointing and leading to something that is truly worth celebrating before us, a hope that does not disappoint us. Those small wins we share with Jesus, one day they will be eclipsed by a vibrant resurrection. And we get to share that as well as his church. So when one lives watchfully in the present, even small moments can be celebrated as a gift and it can be celebrated as a promissory note of a bigger prize of a resurrection that is right down the road. And this, friends, this, friends, is no small thing. It's no small thing. Even if the only win you can manage to see is something that's internal, No one else can even see it. Maybe it's something new you learned in the Bible or peace of mind that comes when a problem disappears or or, uh, when someone forgives you or you're able to forgive somebody else. Even when it's something that's internal, it is to remind you of a bigger gift. This is how Paul is able to celebrate in need and when he was hungry and when he is low. This is how Paul is able to be content in every moment of every day and what other people would look on and say, that is commonplace drudgery. He's able to see color amidst all the black and white. This is why he tells the church of Rome, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's fascinating to me because this is a guy that if you read in in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I actually caught a glimpse of paradise. I actually saw it for a split second. So let me just... Make it real for everybody. All the, the whoopings and the shipwrecks and the calamities and the persecutions, it does, it's not even in the same ballpark. I don't even see it. I don't even see it. It's fascinating. Here's the truth for you and me. The greatest glory and splendor and beauty and peace you will ever come into contact with, more than anything you've ever experienced in your entire life, 
the greatest glory and splendor and beauty and rest you will ever come into contact with will be when Jesus Christ comes and collects you and calls you his own and you see him face to face. That that will eclipse anything. This is why it says in 1 Corinthians, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Because I just consider, just dream for a moment what melts away in the blink of an eye, all anxiety. All your responsibilities that kind of nag at the back, just take up RAM all the time. All these open apps in your head, demanding attention, gone. All your obligations, gone. All your nightmares, gone. Discontent with someone around you, gone. Pains, gone. Hits, gone. Suffering, gone. It all melts away in a blink of an eye. If I was the greatest communicator on the planet, I could not, I could not, in, in words that we have today, reveal the ramifications of what it will look and feel when Christ comes and collects us and calls us his own. I, can't, I couldn't do it. Our brains couldn't hold it. But until that time, we have mile markers now, breadcrumbs now, right? Until that time, we have these shared moments that we can celebrate in the present. When we're a victim, like Saul, we'll miss it. We'll miss it. We'll be grumpy. We'll see everybody winning except for us. So how do we do this? To drill it down and make it as practical as we possibly can. And let me tell you, this is not hypothetical for me. One of my biggest goals in this extended rest I got to take this summer was to learn new rhythms that would allow me to slow down and smell the roses. I'm pretty lousy at that. Some of you, you know that. I've always found that when others are able to celebrate, I'm unable to even see the win. High fives all around me, can't see it, right? Even with big wins, I'm already looking at what could have made the big win bigger. What went wrong with it? What could have made this moment bigger, better, faster, stronger? It was a lot like Saul, having a hard time living in the present. Small wins, very undetectable. I just couldn't see these mile markers I'm talking about now. These little things that should be pointing me to the forever after. Could not see them, could not celebrate them. So for the last several months, I've been working through some spiritual disciplines that has made this very helpful for me and has helped me live a gospel-centered life and celebrating small wins. I hope it's helpful for you. One of the first things I've learned how to do that I would submit to you is that you pray with great expectation that God will show life to you and point to resurrection somehow. You pray and pray expectantly. I ripped this out of a journal entry I had a few weeks ago. Lord, I want to share wins with you today in gratitude and celebration, but I'm prone to just miss them all. I'm blind to that. But by your Spirit, show me where these winds are at. By your Spirit, help me see what they point to. What looks and smells like resurrection today, Lord? I have to say that a lot. And listen, this takes practice, just like any other spiritual discipline, right? It, if you don't know what a spiritual discipline is, that's totally fine. All it is is it's a pattern of devotion that kind of nurtures your affections for Jesus. It's experiential behavior, Right? It's a habit that promotes spiritual growth. It could be something like prayer or singing, reading, fasting, lamenting, fellowshipping, eating. It could be a lot of things. This took practice for me. Praying and watching for these moments is a sort of discipline. Very practically, twice a day. 
I don't know, you can do it once a week. I'm just telling you, for me, it's twice a day. I step off the track of busyness. And I just say, what is it that smells like resurrection that I could be thankful for? And how does it show me what my mind cannot conceive that God is preparing? Questions like, where have I had a deep sense of connecting with God? Where have I, in the last several hours, had a life-giving connection with others? Where have I felt authentic and rested in the Lord? Where has God done something unexpected and welcome? Listen, this isn't always easy. That's why it's called a spiritual discipline. Sometimes I, I just have to sit there for a few minutes and go, ah, it's been like eight hours and I can't think of one thing. Like, it's just all been kind of blah, meh, or bad. I can't really conceive of where I've smelled or seen God's sweetness to me. And it takes me a while. It takes me a while. And then when I see it, it's unrecognizable, but I'm just not used to stretching my mind in that direction. But what happened over time, I noticed, what happened over time is it became instinct and I could see it in the moment. I could see it when it was happening. That's a small win. That's a small win. That's a small win. It's called living in the moment. This is how you practice getting to a place like that. Might be a moment with my wife, my kids, laughing with friends, something I learned in the Word. Might be an encouragement. In all honesty, a lot of times it's you. I think of you. I'll leave a lunch or get a text or bump into you and I see how you've grown individually. Stuff that you used to trip over, you step over now. I've just seen you expand, your love for God get deeper. I've caught your encouragement. Sometimes it's you. And that's a win. It's a win. Second and last step, just two steps. I'm a simple guy. After seeing it, choose gratitude and celebration. Capital C, choose. <laughs> gratitude is a spiritual discipline and it requires courage. It requires courage. And I think you know why. Courage is needed because we like to guard ourselves from celebration. Celebration feels dangerous, doesn't it? Premature. That's what it feels like. What bitterness will do is it will try to convince you that it's just going to get bad again. Everything's just going to get really bad. So we fear celebration because we're waiting for the boot to drop, reality to land on us. So celebrating feels like a fool's game. We don't want to generate any excitement inside of us. So as a result, we'll remain sober, we'll remain sad, because in that we feel safe at least. At least we won't be let down, right? That's true. You probably won't be let down. And it's true, if you allow yourself to celebrate that small win and see a piece of heaven, it might just be seconds later before suffering comes again. It might happen. But to ignore the win and not live in the present and not look through the present into what God is preparing for us, it's just going to miss something that Christ wants to share. It's going to be the miscontentment in your life. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me and we'll put a bow on this here in a moment. The worship team will be out here shortly and we'll celebrate through another spiritual discipline which is singing and then communion will be available in the back. And let me just say about communion, if you're new or maybe you're uh, searching for Jesus, maybe you're not a Christian, but you're just kind of checking it out, don't worry about those tables back there. Just focus on the person of Christ and who is this Christ to you? That's what I want you to think about. This communion, it's a moment of celebration. Jesus says to do it in remembrance of him. 
And here we are to celebrate it with each other. And what we celebrate in that communion is what Jesus has done in us and for us, right? But I'll tell you, it's one of those breadcrumbs I'm talking about. It's a sacrament. It's also a mile marker because it's pointing to something much bigger. It's pointing to a day where we're sitting at a banqueting table with Christ again, taking communion with him, and the banner over us is love. A, a, a banquet of victory. That's what it's pointing to. So we celebrate communion imperfectly now, right? There's, listen to me. There's no way that's like perfectly designed the way the Hebrews would have. It's not even real wine. We're on school property, right? It's juice. Even if it was wine, it'd be Trader Joe's wine probably, which I'm sure would not be kosher for some reason. The bread is probably not. the. It's imperfect. It's just imperfect. But there will be a day. And it points to that day. Make no mistake. It points to the day where everything that you've seen and everything that you've heard and everything that you've ever known has not prepared you for what will be right before you. Right? And I think as we take communion and as we pray and as we sing, there's room for us to repent in passages like this. Because a discontent and thankless life, that's sinful. It's sinful to behave like Saul. That's a sin. Right? When we complain, play the victim, compare ourselves, fail to thank God for the things He's doing now, fail to thank God for the things He's preparing for us, that's a sin, right? It's a gospel less, Jesus less, hopeless position, and it requires change from us. But here's the good news there's also room to be encouraged. Room to be encouraged. God leading us leading us to a place where he is going to rescue us into everlasting. I know it feels like an eternity away, right? To, to preach about what it's going to look like at, at the end of all ends. C.S. Lewis, he calls it the beginning of all beginnings. He says everything that you've ever experienced is nothing. He, he describes it as that, 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 that weird moment where you try to fall asleep and then you realize you're not comfortable and so that you roll over and then you fall asleep for a long, healthy sleep. Right now, we haven't even rolled over yet, he would say. We haven't even gotten to the beginning yet. But just dream and stretch the imagination, not just to how much God loves you, but to what the cosmos will look like when everything broken is pulled out of it, where everything sad becomes very untrue and the whole cosmos is recalibrated to hold the glory of God with no sin at all. Yeah, there's struggle now. But we do have a turn in our story, a pivot. We have a hero. We have an everlasting. And listen, I think there's not only room to repent, room to be encouraged. I think there's room to call Jesus Lord. I think some of you in here, Jesus is not Lord. And if you feel like God is drawing you into this new life full of vibrancy, full of winds, he is first calling you into a united shared death. This is what I mean by that. Not, not death like we're going to do something odd with you, or, but, but death in the fact that all the idols that you hold above your head and you say, this is what serves me, this is what promises me life, this is what I cherish more than Jesus, that all of those are put to death at the foot of the cross, that you yourself, you go to the foot of the cross. And here's the thing about the foot of the cross. You don't go there to improve yourself. You go to the foot of the cross to die. There is a shared death before there is a shared resurrection. 
So if you feel drawn and called into a life like this, let me encourage you. It's because the Holy Spirit is active in your life, which is why you feel a little bit nervous, a little bit excited, a bit freaked out, a lot hopeful. It's just a big mess of stuff. You just feel, but you don't even know how to describe the feeling. It could be the Holy Spirit is actually in the process of giving you a new heart, pulling out the heart of stone and replacing it with a feeling, vital, vibrant heart of flesh. And that's going to be my prayer for you that he is saving you. So let me pray for all of you. We'll move into worship. We'll move into communion. Father, I thank you for these passages. I can see Saul coming back on a horse and getting really angry because I am that guy. And then I see Paul going through good and tough times, content, all the same, and I want to be that guy. But Lord, I know that it's your Holy Spirit's work in us that makes us content. It's your Holy Spirit, Father, that shows us Jesus and Jesus clearly. Lord, help us be a gospel-centered church that is able to even process our small wins through the centrality of what you've done for us. Just through the centrality of, of how much you love us, the grace that you show us, the love and the favor totally despite us. Lord, I pray for those in the room that struggle with comparing themselves. I pray for those in the room who are just grumpy. They look at their black and white life and they're mad that others aren't like them. They're mad that others don't, that others are celebrating something that looks like they deserve it, but they're not getting it. Lord, I ask for your grace to fall upon us, to lead us away from sin, to lead us away from a thankless existence, to give us the ability to smell the roses, and to not just celebrate small wins because they feel good or are good, but to celebrate the wins because they're just glimpses, echoes, ripples from this very beautiful thing that you are building and are preparing that we can't even conceive. So Lord, we love you. And Lord, we as a church, we pray for those in this room, in this city, in these neighborhoods right around this school. Father, that don't see you with vibrancy. They don't understand the gospel. In fact, they might not have ever even heard the gospel. Lord, that you would visit them in a very real and tangible way. That you would break their heart with grace. That they would be melted before you. They'd see the blood on their hands, and then they would see the blood on the cross, and then they would say, oh my God, what have I done? They'd say, and oh my God, what have you done? that they become alive, alive, animated, that the gospel rescues them. Lord, we need revival in this city. We need awakening in this city. And we need awakening in this room. Help us to see the winds in our life. And I even pray, even as there's music going and communion, and even as the service is over and everyone goes about their day, Lord, that you would start to show people small winds here and there, that they would be able to live in the moment and capture that moment. They would be able to seize a little bit of the resurrection, even today, somehow, some way. We love you, Father. Make us content in all things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.